We are in 1 Corinthians 7 this morning. Grab a Bible. Or 1 Corinthians 6, the last part of 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, years ago, I believe it was the 50th anniversary of Woodstock uh, this year. And so uh, maybe you were around to hear about that firsthand, or maybe you've read about it in the history books. But the moral imperative of Woodstock was, if it feels good, do it. If you want to do it and it feels good, why not? We have the word we use Hedonism. And hedonism comes from the Greek word for pleasure. And so a hedonist is someone who just simply lives for pleasure. They have that slogan, if it feels good, do it. And so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's in Ephesus, but he's writing to the believers in Corinth. And he is writing about problems that the church has. One of the major problems in the first four verses, or first four chapters was divisions. They were aligning themselves with different teachers and it was causing problems in the church. And now he's moving into another area. And so we saw in chapter 5 that there was a, a man living in sexual immorality and the church didn't do anything about it. Now listen, the Corinthians didn't have any monopoly on sexual sins. It wasn't any worse than any of the, of the port cities in the Mediterranean. They all had their problem. And so now Paul returns once again to the issue of sexual immorality. He talks about the man living in incest, and then he talks about lawsuits, and he talks about sexual immorality, and you're thinking, well, that's kind of a strange segue. But if you follow the pattern, this is why we're walking through a book as an entire book and not just pulling out pieces. It starts to make sense why Paul was talking about the things that he did. And so in Corinth, it was widely known for its unrestrained sexual indulgence. In fact, the phrase to Corinthianize had become equivalent to the Greek for to practice fornication. And so people would say to Corinthianize just meant to do it if it felt good. The slogans we have in our culture about sexuality, the slogans that we have about who we are as persons are very powerful and they kind of take hold. One of the slogans that we have in our Culture today is my body, my choice. I can do what I want with my body. In fact, the major controversy, John Legend and Kelly Clarkson even changed the lyrics to Baby, It's Cold Outside to It's Your Body and It's Your Choice. And so they are cognizant of that. So what are we to make of all this? Turn to Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. I have the right to do everything you say, but not everything is beneficial. Remember, Paul has this heart of a, of a pastor, of a father he talked about in his spiritual children. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So Paul is going to address some of the slogans of the Corinthians. And he's going to correct them or he's going to qualify them. 
Ever since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, large segments of our modern world have subscribed to that if it feels good, do it mentality. But when people adopt this ethic in their lives, when we adopt that slogan, families are destroyed and addictions overwhelm many people. Our prevalent abuse of our bodies today includes not just sexual immorality, but drunkenness and chain smoking and drug abuse and lack of proper exercise and diet and workaholism. Like we can over, we can abuse ourselves and do that. And we have to be uh, mindful of who we are and how God has created us. And so Paul now begins this pattern we're going to see in Corinthians that he quotes a Corinthian slogan and then he will address that slogan. So this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to walk through these slogans because we miss the point of Corinthians if we don't recognize that Paul is using their slogans. And then he's saying, here is the word from the Lord in addressing your slogans. So what's the first slogan? The first slogan is, I have the right to do anything. Now, in your version of your Bible, you may have that in quotes. Some do and some don't. And so what Paul is saying is, this is a a slogan that the, that the Corinthians were using. It, it, the, the slogan is what? I have the right to do anything. And he uses that two times in the uh, verse number uh, 12. And he's saying, this is your slogan. Well, what did that mean for the Corinthians? William Barclay says this, the Greeks always looked down on the body that produced one of two attitudes. Either it issued the most rigorous asceticism in which everything was done to subject and humiliate the desires and instinct of the body. So we have these two ideas. So in Corinth, they said that I can have the right to do anything. So in the Greek philosophy, they looked down on the on the body. So one uh, solution to that was to be an ascetic. And the ascetic is to subject and humiliate the desires and instincts of the body. Don't give in to any desires. Don't have any pleasure. Don't have any fun. Or the other option was, as we see in Corinth, it was a second outlook that since the body was of no importance, you could do with it what you liked. What what complicated this was the doctrine of Christian freedom that Paul preached. So here you have these believers in Corinth. And before they became uh, believers, they had this mindset that the body is bad. So one of two options is I'm either going to subdue it or I'm just going to do anything that I want. And so then when they became believers, they heard that you are now free from the law of Moses. You have freedom in Christ. And so if I come from the place before I was a, a believer where I thought that I could do anything with my body that I wanted. And now I hear that in Christ, I'm free. Woohoo! I can do anything I want. See what's going to happen? Next week, we're going to get into the other branch of that, the ascetics, who who said, no, 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 you have to subdue everything from the body. But Paul first addresses this one side in Corinth. If the Christian person, the Corinthians, believed is the freest of all people, because we are free in Christ, right? He set us free. But the mindset of the Corinthians was that he was free to do what he likes, especially with the completely unimportant body. Remember, the mindset of the Corinthians was, your body doesn't matter. It's your spirit. It's your thoughts. It's your mind. The body is of, is of no significance. And so I can do with it what I want because the body doesn't really matter. What really matters is my thoughts, right? And, and, and my, my, my inside, so I can do whatever I want with the outside. And so the Corinthians argue that in an enlightened kind of way, I can do anything that I want. So what is the, what is the body's way? Well, if the body's hungry, you feed it. 
And so the a liberal side would say, you just eat whatever you want, how much you want, as often as you want. You can get drunk and you could, uh, you know, just be so stuffed. Uh, um, they had vomitoriums in Rome. Did you know what those are? You ate and ate and ate and ate and then you threw up so you could eat and eat and eat some more. And so why did they do that? Because of the mindset that the body doesn't matter. So I'm just going to abuse it and I'm going to stuff it and I'm going to empty it so I can stuff it again. That was what Paul is addressing. And so the argument was this. The sexual desire, just like the desire for hunger, should be satisfied with the same degree of moral indifference as your stomach. So since it doesn't matter what you put into your stomach, it shouldn't really matter what you do sexually. And so the Corinthians thought that their freedom from the law of Moses meant they could do whatever they want, with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted, how often they wanted. And so Paul quotes this slogan. So that's the very first slogan. I have the right to do anything. This was the mindset of the Corinthians. Isn't that the mindset today? I mean, anytime we talk to anybody about, about uh, God's createdness or, or morals or those kinds, and what's the first reaction is, well, I can do whatever I want. So we still have that slogan today. And so here's what Paul says in verse 12. He qualifies it and he says this, undisciplined freedom is not always helpful and it may become harmful. Look what he says. He says, I have the right to do anything you say. See, he says, this is your slogan. But what does he say? Not everything is beneficial. Just because I have the right to eat doesn't mean I need to eat the whole box of Krispy Kreme donuts at one time. That's what he's saying. It's not against the law for you to do that. It's not, right? You, you, you can actually do that. If you have the big enough stomach and your mouth is working, you can shove those donuts in there. But Paul's saying, it might not be the most helpful thing. Just because I can do it doesn't mean I should do it or that it is good for me. And so what happens is Christian freedom is always balanced in the context of love that seeks the good of others and what is beneficial and profitable and helpful. And that's what Paul was saying at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, you say you have the right to do anything. You can sue Anybody you want to sue, take them to court. But Paul says it's not helpful. Just because you can sue somebody at the beginning of chapter 6 doesn't mean you should sue somebody. And now he's picking up on that same thing. So you see how the themes connect between suing and sexuality? Is he saying just because you can do something doesn't mean you should be doing it. Just because your car goes 100 miles an hour doesn't mean you should be driving that fast. And that's what Paul now says with sexuality. You say you have the right to do anything you want, but it's not always helpful. In fact, he says again in verse 12, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. In fact, in that philosophy of saying that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, not only is it not helpful, but what happens is it can become harmful. We become addicted. You know, the one lie of addicts always is, I can stop whenever I want. Well, then why aren't you stopping? Why don't you stop if you can stop? Just prove it. Stop. But they can't because why? It's this undisciplined freedom to do whatever we want. 
first of all, is not always helpful, but then it can also become harmful. And Paul qualifies this Corinthian statement. Just because you can do it doesn't mean it's good for you. And if you do it over and over long enough, you are going to be mastered by it. And you're going to wake up one day and you're going to say, I can't stop doing this. What has happened to me? And Paul is saying in verse 12, he says, that's what happens when you have this freedom to do whatever you want. There's going to come a time when you want to stop, but you're not going to be able to. So it's not always helpful and it's not always beneficial. Ancient writers and philosophers never affirmed the Bible's view that sexual desires and expressions are under divine authority and under divine regulation. Into this mix comes the Bible's view of sexuality, that God has created it and that it is to be within his parameters and within his design. Ancient writers never knew of such a concept. In fact, in the pagan Roman world that Paul was writing in, that concept was so totally foreign. That's why Christians were viewed as very odd and and very different because they have a different view of what it means to be human. Listen, God's view of what it means to be human is the most humanizing view that there is. How you view yourself matters if I view myself the way God views me or I view myself the way I want to view me or the way the world views me. And we see that tension over and over in our culture today. Emma Watson is an actress, actor, sorry. And she just, she's a single woman. And so she calls herself self-partnered instead of single. I'm not single, I'm self-partnered. Well, who's your partner? It's me. And we are redefining and we are reshaping language and we're redefining terms. No, lady, you're single. And nobody's going to want to be your partner because you already have a partner that's you. How, how odd is that? But it, it makes perfect sense to some people. And so what we've done is the, the biblical view is that mankind is a creation of the creator and that we are subjected to God's laws and his divine ordering of creation. So you know what's easier? Instead of subjecting myself to God's laws, I just kick God out. Now I'm an atheist, or I'm an agnostic, or I don't really believe that there is a God. See how easy that is? I just got all, but that's not how God divined reality. And that's what Paul isn't letting the Corinthians get off with either. In fact, Augustine captures this in his statement, love God and do what you please. In other words, if I put God first in everything, and I love him, and I want to serve him, and I want to, to do what he's called me to do... I can do anything because I want to do under his prescription and under his guidance. The love of God involves, above all else, seeking to please him with our behavior. And so the freedom that is in Christ is really the freedom to be what God has called us to be. Humans are never wise enough or holy enough to guide our own steps. Have you ever noticed how we keep messing things up? We're just not wise enough in our own selves without God's revelation, without God's word coming into our lives to tell us how this creation is supposed to work. So Paul addresses that first slogan of the Corinthians. He says, I have the right. That's true. To an extent, he qualifies it. But the second slogan he quotes is this. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Remember, the Corinthians have this idea that God does not care about our physical nature, about our physicalness, 
and appetites. And so if God doesn't care about the physical part of me, he doesn't care about how my physical appetites are satisfied. See how the logic goes? And so they had this saying, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. What does that mean? That means that I have this physical part of me. And so my stomach has a desire when I get hungry to eat. And so the food goes in the stomach and the stomach, right, calls for the food. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because God's going to destroy them. That was the thinking is that God, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And so whatever would cause us to be, uh, have an addiction under any circumstances uh, would be harmful, right? Food, drugs, emotions, material possessions, they're all lawful and good and helpful if they're controlled by the word of God and by his design for us. Even these things become harmful if we're mastered by them. And so what Paul says is what? You are saying that your physical life doesn't matter to God. Now listen, the church for years is, I think we promoted this. Have you ever heard this? You're just a spirit in a body. Or I'm just in this body. I can't wait to get out of this body and I can't wait to get to get to heaven. No, 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 no. We are created embodied creatures. We are created body and spirit together. Having this idea of separateness that only the soul matters, only the spirit matters is not a biblical concept. It is a pagan Greek concept that you can do whatever you want with your body because God doesn't care about the physical. And that's what Paul is saying. So you, you, you're saying that God's just going to destroy the physical. So do whatever you want with the physical as long as you don't mess with the spiritual. But look at Paul's principle in verse 13. Your body is meant for the Lord's purposes. He says the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What, what, what did Paul just do? He just overturned that whole slogan. Do you see what he did? Our body is meant for what? Tell me, church. The Lord. Your body has a purpose. Meant for means there is a purpose. There is an oughtness to life because God has created it. Meant for means there is an ought. There is a right and there is a wrong way to use the things that God has created. And so what Paul says is this. The physical body belongs to the Lord Jesus. Isn't that what he says? He says the, the body is not meant for sexual immorality because the body matters. He qualifies it. It's meant for what? It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Look what he says. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. God has a future plan for your body. Resurrection. You know that body you came in here with this morning with all the aches and the pains and all the stuff that goes with it and all the stuff that used to be a certain height is now down a little bit lower and everything that used to be there is now falling out. That body, God has a purpose for it. And what's the purpose? Resurrection. We're going to have resurrected bodies. And so in the biblical worldview, your body does matter. It isn't just something for your spirit to get along with in this world until you die. What Paul does is he appeals to the future destiny of our bodies. God has a future claim on our bodies. And so what Paul says is that sexual immorality is incompatible because it rejects God's purposes for your body. God has a purpose. It's a, it's a, that 
sexual immorality and sexual sins are uniquely harmful for the body. He says the body is not meant for this. Well, not meant for means what? It's meant for something. What's it meant for? It's meant for the Lord. So your body that you are in, we all brought with us today, is created for a purpose. It's meant for a Lord. Now, there's another slogan that Paul addresses, but this one isn't necessarily in quotes, but many scholars think that this is also another slogan, and it fits right along with what uh, Paul's, uh, we talk about. Down in verse 18, it says this, all sins a person commits are outside the body. Now, the, the logic, right, that the, the Corinthians had was what? Your body doesn't matter. Your physical body. Do whatever you want to it. Abuse it, use it, and then discard it because it doesn't matter. Now, this would fit in with that logic, right? Look what Paul says in verse 18. He says this, All sins a person commits are outside the body. Perfect slogan for the Corinthians. In other words, what he says is that it's it's the body, it doesn't matter. So the sins are committed where? Outside with your body. So sin, use your body how you want. And Paul's like, no, 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 wait a minute. And there are good reasons why this is another one of those slogans. And this was part of the Corinthian argument for Christian freedom and all kinds of sexual immorality. My body doesn't matter, so I'm just going to use it however I want. And Paul's like, no, I'm going to qualify this. So he says in verse uh, 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? He appeals to you as a nature. When you become a Christian, your body is united with Jesus. Shall I take the members of the of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So what he does is he appeals to the nature of who you are. We tend to think that only personalities are part of the church. But it's our bodies and our personalities that are part of the church. We talk about the invisible church. And there's, you know, the, the invisible church is those who belong to Jesus. Listen, the invisible church is not invisible. I can see you. You can see me. We're not invisible. We are the visible church. And so what Paul is saying is you have a unique relationship to Jesus, an intimate relationship that you're united with him. And so when you take this, your body is united with him. How do we know that? Because just as Jesus was resurrected, your body is going to be resurrected as well. You are united physically with Jesus. Or there will be no future resurrection. So what Paul says is, you take this physical body and you unite it with a prostitute or that sexual immorality. What you're doing is, you're taking this body that belongs to Jesus and you're uniting it over here. And what happens? You're taking Jesus with you. It's not just, I don't think about Jesus. It's not just, I get it out of my head. It's like, if you're in your body doing the thing, you are united to Jesus and you unite to the prostitute. And that's why Paul says, this isn't working. I don't know that we've understood our, our unique way that God has designed us sexually because Paul says this, that our sexual sins uniquely affect the whole person. We have to be aware of a truncated gospel that only says God is only concerned about your soul. God is concerned about you, your body and your soul. We need to start teaching stewardship of our bodies as well. It's not just about our spirits. It's about our souls and our spirits working together as human beings. That's what makes us human. 
When we die, the spirit leaves the body and the body goes in the ground. We're not human anymore. We are human as these two are united. And so Paul says this, that because your body matters to the Lord, it's because that is why sexual sins uniquely affect you, because you are united with Jesus spiritually, physically resurrection, but you're also united, what, to this prostitute, Physically, but you're also in a way spiritually and emotionally united because he says in verse 16, he says, do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is what? Is one with her in, what does it say? Body. And in our culture where we say, you know what, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's only what I think up here. Paul says the exact opposite. It matters what you do with your body. Because there's this, there's this unification that happens. There's, a, there's this thing that happens. And so Paul appeals to this uh, nature of the, of the sexual union. Obviously, it comes from Genesis 2.24. Now listen, sex by itself does not constitute a marriage. Genesis 2.24 says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So the one flesh is that thing that Paul is talking about. But what came before that? This is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife. There is the commitment, then there's the consummation. And Paul is quoting Genesis, and whenever Paul quotes the created order, he is saying this is an eternal principle for all of time. It has nothing to do with Old Testament, New Testament. This is how we are created. And so a believer is united with Christ and one with him in what? In spirit. We're also one with him in body and to have an illicit sexual partner. What does that mean? That means that I am breaking the bond with Jesus. So he's appealing to something much deeper. Paul is not saying that other sins do not affect us. But what he is saying that there is no other sin that unites one person with another person in such a life-affecting way. He's not saying that sexual immorality is the worst of all sins, but what he is saying is that it affects us in a different way. And it affects both body and spirit in a way that you is, is uniting. And so sexual immorality destroys that part of us, love and faithfulness and commitment, that thing that is there. And so listen, Paul is not saying sexual sinners are worse, but he is saying this, that it uniquely affects the whole person. It treats the human body not as a thing, but as a person. And in our culture and in our world, we want to treat our human bodies as things. I just want to do what I want to do with it. And so why is it people feel like crap the day after a one-night stand? Your body's just a thing. Why does it matter? It's because you're not just a thing. You are a human being. Soul, spirit, together. So you feel like crap because that's in your soul, in your spirit, where the guilt resides. And we want to disconnect. We want to treat our bodies like things. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. That's not how this, that's not how this works. And so Paul said every other sin which a man commits outside the body, but the sexual sin, you what sin against your own body, uniquely affects us. Paul lists other sins in Corinthians. Um, he lists drunkenness, and that can cause physical harm to one's body. But it's the fact that sexual uh, sin causes this uh, unification, this uniting in a different way. 
Brendan Burns says this, The immoral person perverts precisely that faculty within himself that is meant to be the instrument of the most intimate bodily communication between persons. He sins against his unique power of bodily communication, and in this sense, sins in a particular way against his own body. All other sins are in this respect outside the body, with body having in this verse the strong sexual overtones that appear to cling to it through the passage as a whole. He says, no other sin engages one power of bodily personal communication in precisely and so intimate a way. So here's what Paul says. Sexual sins affect your body in a unique way. Now, I can say I have the right to do whatever I want with my body. I can eat the whole box of Krispy Kreme donuts. Paul's like, no, you don't have the right. That's harmful and it's not helpful. What happens if I continually eat bodies of crispy, uh, boxes of Krispy Kreme donuts? I start to look like a donut. How do I get rid of the donut? I stop eating Krispy Kreme donuts, and I start exercising. And guess what? My donut shape will shrink down to the shape of a donut hole, right? It'll, it'll start to decrease. So if the sin of drunkenness, I stop drinking, right? And I start uh, living a healthy lifestyle. So in a sense, those gluttony and drunkenness, um, uh, gambling, right, all this, I just stop doing it, and I can make restitution for people that I stole from. If I'm thieving, right, I can give back. So in a way, all those things are set straight. But Paul says this, there are some things about, this, uh, about sexual immorality that cannot be undone. If I steal from you, I pay you back, and we're good. You might not like me, and maybe won't loan to me anymore, but I, but I feel okay, right? I'm like, I stole, and now I seek your forgiveness. But when I commit sexual immorality, what happens is there are some things I just can't undo. There's memories, and there's emotions, and it goes down to the psyche of who I am. That's what Paul's saying. He says it affects us in such a profound way way. And so it, and and long enough, it'll eventually dull our senses and it'll cause us to act in in certain ways. That's why Paul and, and the biblical view of sexuality is what it is. Your, your, your body matters and all sin is harmful, but the sexual sins affect us in a uniquely different way. So Paul says we need to do something about it. You know, the, the Bible's view of sexuality is profoundly humanizing. I put, these, I put this on your notes. Uh, you don't have to fill anything in, but I want you to understand this. Why the Bible says what it does. The first thing, it treats people with the care and dignity that creatures made in God's image deserve. You and I are embodied spirits. And the biblical view of sexuality treats us like spirit and body. It doesn't just treat us as body to do whatever we want. It treats us as both. And so the biblical view treats the, a, a human with a care. You, your, your being created in God's image, you have an inherent dignity in your life. Regardless of what anybody has said to you about how, 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 how awful you are and what a loser you are and some of those things we hear, no, you have an inherent dignity in your life because you are created in God's image. And the biblical view of sexuality respects that dignity. The second thing it does, it understands that sex has unique effects on a person's psyche. It just does. You can't detach your mind and your emotions because that's not how God designed it. God designed it to be the uniting of two people in this relationship. And number three, it's the most intimate of interpersonal relations, and so it should be reserved for the most permanent of interpersonal commitments. Do you know study after study after study has shown that folks who live together 
have higher rates of stress and higher rates of divorce. And do you know why? It's because there is nothing there I can leave, and so it's just this big game. I'm not going to tell you how, you, how I really feel about you because I don't want you to move out. I don't want you to, uh, you need to do what I, or, uh, what I want you to do or I'm going to move out. And so what happens is we treat each other without this commitment, without this level of commitment. And sometimes you hear, you know, marriage is just a piece of paper, but there have been times in every marriage relationship when it's just that piece of paper that's holding you together until you can get things worked out. And so what the biblical view of sexuality does, it does that very thing. It says the most intimate of uh, interpersonal relationships are reserved for the most permanent of interpersonal uh, relationships, which is what? The bond of marriage, that covenant of marriage. So what does Paul tell us to do? He gets really practical. He tells us to flee from sexual immorality. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Again, the slogan, all of the sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against his own body, right? He, so he tells us to flee. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he says, Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. He uses the word flee for two things, sexual immorality and idolatry. Isn't that interesting? The two most frequent sins that characterized the city of Corinth at the time Paul wrote that was what? Idolatry and sexual immorality. And sometimes, oftentimes, they went together. At the pagan temples where we worship idols, sexuality was very much a part of that. Temple prostitutes and all kinds of things that were going on. And so Paul says what? You flee from both. And if I make a dot, what I can do is I can make sexu- uh, sexuality an idol in my life. I get my worth and I get my dignity and I get all those things from it. And pretty soon, in order to feed my idol, I'm going to start doing things that are incompatible with how God has created me. And so he says to flee sexual immorality. Who comes to mind when you hear that? Joseph in the Old Testament, right? Joseph was in Potiphar's house. And uh, Mrs. Potiphar comes up and she uh, wanted him to go to bed with her. And he refused and he fled. And what happens? He lived happily ever after. No, she had his coat and she caught his coat. And uh, he fled and, and Potiphar wasn't happy. And Joseph ended up in prison. She said, see this? That Hebrew you brought in here, he's, he's made sport of me. Listen. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't always mean we're not going to suffer consequences from people who don't understand. Joseph still had a flea, but he still ended up in prison. And isn't that how life is? It just stinks. Let's be honest. It just stinks. Doing the right thing doesn't always mean we're going to get the right result. Sometimes, like for Joseph, we end up in a place we never thought we would. But listen, do you think Joseph could sleep well in prison except for the snoring prisoners? Yes, because he had a clear conscience. He knew that I was not in here for anything that I have done. And so Paul says, what? Flee from sexual immorality. Listen, the first, he doesn't say, think about it and walk away. He doesn't say, stay, what does he say? Flee. What does that mean? Out. As soon as that thing. Most battles are lost because we don't flee. We're already one, two, three steps in the way. Avoid places that, that uh, uh, make that uh, more tempting. Refrain from uh, dating relationships that push into the sexual immorality. Ref- maybe you have to flee from very good, close, personal friendships who are in that place where they are luring you and encouraging you to be in that place of, of sexual immorality. It also applies on a mental level. The, the battle is lost up here first. We dwell on, oh, here's what I could do. Oh, here's how I could get away with it. Oh, here's what I want to do. 
And so flee also means mentally. So Paul's like, don't think about it. You just get out of there. Just like Joseph did. Don't think about it. Don't try to reason. Don't try to argue. Don't try to you know, change, the, change the mind. You get out of there. You have to physically and mentally remove your place. And he gives us two reasons why. The first one is this, is that the Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And so Paul's concern was, you as a believer, you have God in you. And you're carrying God around with you in the person of the, of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here teaches that the individual body of each believer is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And every believer at Corinth received that. And every believer here, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And so using the body for immorality, listen, including hatred and greed and unchristian lawsuits that he just talked about in the beginning of chapter 6 is perverting and downgrading that which God meant to be a residence of the Holy Spirit. Whatever sin it is, we, are, we, still, we still have the Holy Spirit in us as believers. And guess what? Where my body goes, there I am, and there is what? The Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting how we want God to see us when we're in trouble, but we don't want him to see us when we're sinning. Ah, that somehow God's like, oh, God, don't... don't like, why is all sin around the corner, around the back alley, in the dark? We think God can't see, but God, as a believer, is in you. He's right there in the midst of it. And Paul says, that's why you need to flee. So you take that Holy Spirit, and you too, you get out of there. And so the Spirit lives in you. It was intended that God would dwell in us. That's the new of the new covenant. The new of the new covenant is the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. And the second thing Paul says is this, you're not your own. Oh man, talk about countercultural. It, it's, I, 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 can do whatever, I, I can do whatever I want. But the believer cannot make choices based on our own preferences, but we make choices on what God wants us to do. There is not a sense of autonomy when it comes to God. The reason that we no longer claim free choices is that we are now belonging to Jesus. Look what he says. He says in verse 19, do you not know? This is kind of those rhetorical questions like you should know this. But there's places in your life where you kind of forget or you don't want it to be true, but it's still true. That your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. Then what does he say? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. We talk about Jesus purchasing our freedom. This is not Jesus purchasing our freedom. This is Jesus purchasing us. He is our owner. We were bought. It's not the price paid for redemption or freedom, but it's the price paid for change of ownership. So it's not my body, my choice. It's God's body, his choice when I'm a Christian. Totally countercultural. You see, the body matters. God works through the body. You'll always find in the Bible that God works through the human body in this world. John chapter 1, verse 14 says what? The word became, tell me, Flesh. God took on a bod in Jesus. The son came to offer himself, Hebrews 10, 5 says, as a perfect sacrifice in the flesh. It was in a body that man sinned, that we sinned. It's in, a, it's in a body that Adam sinned. It's in a body that we sinned. It was in a body that the son of man came to earth. It was in a body that Jesus conquered sin that had conquered us. We are reconciled. Listen, Colossians 1.22, the verse is on your notes. But now he has reconciled you by Christ. What does that say? Physical body through death. 
to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. We are reconciled by Christ's physical body. Our bodies matter. Jesus took on a body. He died in a body. Yes, he was fully God. Yes, he was fully man, which meant he had a real body. In fact, after he resurrected from the dead, he comes back. Some of the disciples had missed him. You know, Thomas didn't believe. And Jesus says, look, it is I. A ghost does not have flesh and bones like I do. What did he say? I'm not just a spirit. I am a body. I am a physical body. After the resurrection, we find Jesus was eating. He was hungry. He ascended into heaven bodily. It's, he's going to return from heaven bodily. We are, going, we are going to see him. God's spirit dwells where? In our bodies. The body matters. Your body matters. That's why Paul wrote the second half of Corinthians chapter 6, talking about sexual immorality. The body you came in with today matters to God. Do you know Satan always also works in this world through a body? The only way Satan can thwart God's purposes for our lives is to get our bodies surrendered to do his will instead of God's will. And this is the choice that we have in, the, in our lives. Am I going to do that and take that which was purchased by Christ and made an instrument of the Holy Spirit living in me? Am I going to take this body and am I going to sin with it? The same spirit which enabled Jesus to live day by day lives in us and gives us the power to overcome sin. So join to Christ. Paul says this, therefore, therefore, this is the summer, sum, the summation of everything he just said. Therefore, honor God with your, what does he say? Bodies. Honor God with your bodies. We just want to honor, honor him with our spirits. If I just feel good enough, if I just got the thing on the inside, right? No, 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 no. God says, honor me with your body. You know, if you, if you pinch yourself, you're going to hurt. Why? Because you, you feel. You're a body. We are embodied creatures. And that's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, second part of chapter 6. In Romans, he says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Even under grace, we are to offer ourselves not to sin as instruments of wickedness, but offer ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I know the Bible's teaching on sexuality is not popular with the world. It's not supposed to be. It's always countercultural. It's always against what the world wants and what the world desires. The Bible's view of sexuality, and we're going to pick up on this next week again, is for our good. We are creatures who are created with an ought in our lives. You ought to act this way. You ought to do this. Not just in your spirits, but with your body as well. And that doesn't mean just sexual immorality. That means I need to stop this thing from wagging so much sometimes. That means I need to use these things far more often than I use this thing. Physical body. That, mean, that means I need to use these far more than I use this. 
I serve more than I sit. It means I use my physical body to serve and offer all of my instruments to God for righteousness. Your body matters. And we have the perspective of how God views us and how God sees us and how God has created us. It is what really gives us our human dignity. There is no other worldview that gives you your human dignity like the Bible does. So you walked in here with the body today, and I'm going to ask us to commit. Will we use our bodies as instruments of righteousness? The choice is ours. Maybe you're in one of those besetting sins. doesn't matter what it is. The advice is always the same. You need to flee. You need to get away and out of that thing. You just need to do that. God's Spirit's in us to help us. People can help us. But just because I can do something doesn't mean it's helpful and it often becomes harmful. We could all testify to that. We used our Christian freedom and things that we thought we could do and it just ended up pretty bad. Would you please stand with your bodies, not just in your spirits, and we're going to pray. Father, help us to honor you with our bodies. With all that we are. God, not just sexual immorality, but all the ways that we can use these bodies as instruments of wickedness. And so God, really, I think over these next few moments, is, it's one again, it's one t- again uh, opportunity for us to offer you ourselves as living sacrifices. This is our spiritual act of worship, to put our living bodies on that altar of sacrifice and say, Lord, this is yours. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We, the price that was paid for us determines our worth, and the price was the life of Jesus, and we are worth an inestimable amount because of Jesus. May we live to serve him, not as just a fan, but a true follower of Jesus. Help us to honor you with our bodies. So, Father, these next few moments, we might just need prayer. We might just need to recommit. We might need to seek forgiveness. We might need to seek, just confess to you the ways that we've sinned. But, God, we thank you that we are not under law, but we're under grace. It's, it's the blood of Jesus that forgives us. It's not that we have to get it all right to undo everything we've done. In Jesus, there is no penalty for us, and our price has been paid in full. So, Father, over these next few moments, we continue to surrender to you and commit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.